Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hi there. You made it to the Mod Pod. Whether it's your first time or you're a regular listener of this podcast, welcome and thanks for joining me. In this episode, we're going to cover three more articles from the May-June issue of Modern Optometry. But know that a fresh new issue is just around the corner. More on that later. Right now, let's talk about managing ocular trauma with scleral lenses. Is this a go-to tool that you commonly use to treat trauma cases? Ryan McInnes, an optometrist at the Cleveland Eye Clinic in Ohio, is about to explain how these devices can improve many patients' visual performance and comfort, and thus enhance their quality of life. Traumatic ocular injuries can significantly reduce a patient's ability to function. Symptoms vary depending on the injury and can range from mildly irritating to visually debilitating. Modern scleral lenses can simultaneously treat substandard vision and improve ocular comfort in patients with traumatic injuries. These devices require a great deal of expertise to properly fit and manage patients, but with the right amount of application and skill, clinicians may be able to significantly improve a trauma patient's visual performance. The type of ocular correction required after trauma largely depends on the degree of deformity present. Penetrating injuries often require highly advanced optical devices such as the iPrint Pro. These devices are typically created from a mold of the ocular surface. Technological advances such as the cornea scleral profile scan on the Penicam permit the creation of similar devices without requiring a mold. If a patient's ocular shape was affected only minimally by a traumatic incident, then it is entirely appropriate to fit that patient with a more traditional scleral lens. Care must be taken to protect the compromised corneal structure from further insults such as hypoxia. Fitting patients according to Michaud's criteria can help to prevent hypoxic complications. Specifically, patients should be fit with no more than 200 microns of central lens clearance, lens thickness should not exceed 250 microns, and the lens material should have the highest possible oxygen transmissibility. Patients who have experienced ocular trauma may also present with concurrent ocular surface disease. This may be due to the tear film's inability to cover the irregular surface properly or because trauma has caused tear production to decrease. Lens materials with low wetting angle may promote lens surface wettability, but the most common technique to increase wettability is to coat the lens surface with tangible hydropeg. This coating encapsulates the scleral lens surface and resists deposits while promoting lens surface wetting. Because exposure to harsh chemicals, cleaners, or tap water can strip the coating from the lens surface, it is important to educate patients on the proper care and handling of lenses treated with tangible hydropeg. Scleral lenses can largely be classified into two broad categories according to the nomenclature adopted by the Scleral Lens Education Society. Lenses that are up to 6 mm larger than the horizontal visible iris diameter are classified as mini-scleral lenses and may often be fit with less corneal clearance than larger designs. 
Many scleral lenses promote oxygen availability to the corneal structures and may also require less back surface tericity to match the inherent tericity of the globe. Lenses that possess a diameter greater than 6 millimeters more than the horizontal visible iris diameter are known as large scleral lenses. These possess greater sagittal depth and thus have the ability to fully vault extreme differences in ocular anatomy. Greater amounts of back surface tericity are typically required to fit the non-rotational symmetric globe as one extends further from the limbus. The practitioner must also carefully monitor for any signs of hypoxia, as these larger diameter lenses may have significant clearance differences and thus likewise limit oxygen availability in the areas exhibiting a higher degree of clearance. A 47-year-old man was referred from a dry eye clinic for a possible scleral lens fitting. The patient had experienced moderate to severe ocular discomfort, nearly constant burning and stinging, and significant glare and halos since a firecracker exploded near his face. Diffuse foreign bodies were embedded throughout the ocular structures of each eye. Since the injury, the patient had been relying on spectacle correction because wearing soft contact lenses had become uncomfortable. Epithelial foreign bodies were removed. Those that were prevalent in other structures were deemed inactive and removal was not attempted. The patient was fit with a synergized VS scleral lens in an effort to improve ocular comfort and quality of life to reduce aberrations. The scleral lenses incorporated front toric optics to provide the best possible vision and back surface tericity to optimize the fit. Central clearance was 188 microns on OCT, meaning that the oxygen supply was adequate to promote healthy corneal physiology. To aid with surface wetting, each lens was treated with tangible hydropeg. The patient reported a significant improvement in quality of life after he began wearing the scleral lenses. Ocular aberrations decreased significantly, and he reported no longer experiencing chronic irritation of the ocular surface. The patient should be able to continue with normal activities as long as he is able to wear scleral lenses. It is anticipated that the patient will be reliant on scleral lenses long-term in order to function properly. Concurrent treatment of a patient's ocular surface disease is paramount to achieving success. If the practitioner does not possess the tools and training necessary to manage ocular surface disease, then it is recommended that a proper referral occur. Measuring tear film osmolarity and the presence of inflammatory mediators and viewing the structure and function of the meibomian glands are necessary to properly treat advanced ocular surface disease. Most patients who experience visual decline following ocular trauma notice a significant improvement with scleral lenses. However, patients may struggle with insertion and removal. When feasible, a soft contact lens may still be of use. There may unfortunately be cases in which the ocular trauma is too severe and no form of optical correction can restore functional vision. Treating patients with ocular trauma can be immensely challenging and rewarding. In order to provide the best opportunity for success, the practitioner must have a deep toolbox of optical correction options. Each patient is unique and presents with his or her own inherent challenges. But when success is achieved, there is no better feeling. Sticking with the contact lens theme, our next article is on specialty contact lens fitting in children, read by Christopher Lopez, an associate optometrist at College Hill Eye and Optical in Providence, Rhode Island, who co-wrote the piece with Marcus Noyce, a clinical assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City, Iowa.
the field of specialty contact lens fitting is booming. Although this practice began several decades ago, it was only recently that technological improvements made the fitting of specialty contact lenses accessible to a greater number of optometry offices. With advanced training and cutting-edge technology, optometrists are in a better position than ever to enhance patients' vision, comfort, health, and quality of life. This article describes how to meet the challenges of specialty contact lens fitting in children. Despite advances in optometrists' understanding of and instruction on the fitting of specialty contact lenses, the fitting process is not easy. It takes a great deal of time, energy, and discipline to acquire and cultivate the skills required to become a successful practitioner of specialty contact lenses. Moreover, what the phrase specialty contact lenses encompasses is subjective. In general, most optometrists use this expression to refer to rigid gas permeable lenses, scleral lenses, orthokeratology lenses, hybrid lenses, and a variety of customized soft lenses, for example, cosmetic, aphakic, etc. The complexity of the specialty contact lens fitting process depends on a wide variety of factors, such as the underlying reason for the fitting, for example, a patient's ocular and or systemic conditions, available technologies, for example, corneal and or scleral topography, endothelial cell count, etc., and dexterity, for example, the ability to insert and remove lenses. A patient's age can also contribute to the difficulty and success of a specialty contact lens case, as the cases presented in this article show. A four-year-old white male was referred to the specialty contact lens clinic for a consultation. The patient had a history of globe rupture in the right eye from a high-velocity wooden projectile. He had undergone surgery to remove a traumatic cataract. Additionally, a scleral buckle had been placed to repair a scleral laceration and prevent a future retinal detachment. Areas of corneal retinal atrophy were present peripherally without damage to the retina, macula, or optic nerve head. The injury had resulted in an aphakic eye with a scleral buckle in place and a visually significant corneal scleral laceration extending horizontally limbus to limbus 1 to 2 millimeters below the visual axis. Other findings, such as intraocular pressure, pupils, extraocular muscles, etc., from the preliminary examination were within normal limits. Visual acuity testing was attempted, but an accurate measurement could not be obtained because of poor patient cooperation. For this reason, an in-office specialty contact lens fitting was not possible and an examination under anesthesia, an EUA, was imperative for a fitting to proceed. The patient's parents agreed to have the patient undergo an EUA for a specialty contact lens fitting. A standard soft contact lens would likely have been ineffective because of the irregular astigmatism caused by corneal scarring. During the EUA, an impression mold was taken of the patient's right eye using iPrint Pro technology. An iPrint Pro lens fitting entails applying an impression material to the ocular surface, an impression material to the ocular surface, keeping the material in place until it stabilizes, and then removing it. The process is similar to when an orthodontist takes a dental mold 
for a retainer. After removal of the impression, an aphakic RGP trial lens set was used to perform an over-refraction to determine the lens prescription. The EPP impression was then sent to the laboratory where it was digitized with proprietary software to construct an RGP lens that was optimally fit to the ocular surface that it was designed to cover, in this case, the patient's right eye. The final parameters included a base curve of 9.55 millimeters, an overall diameter of 11.0 millimeters, the patient had a large cornea for his age, and a power of positive 24.62 diopters sphere. The patient's parents were both trained on appropriate RGP lens care and maintenance and given instructions on the proper application and removal of an RGP lens. The cleaning and storage of RGP lenses is typically the same for children and adults. The parents place the lens on the patient's right eye before he wakes up and remove it after he is asleep. Wear time began with a couple of hours and has increased steadily over time. The patient has been successfully wearing a customized iPrim Pro designed RGP lens for two months. Patient cooperation during examinations continues to be a challenge and an accurate measurement of visual acuity remains elusive. The patient's parents, however, have reported a functional improvement in his daily activities and no noticeable level of discomfort. The patient will be monitored closely and lens refitting will be frequently indicated as his eye grows and changes. A 12-year-old white male was referred by the pediatric ophthalmology clinic for a specialty contact lens evaluation. The patient's ocular history was significant for bilateral degenerative myopia, bilateral refractive amblyopia, and a mild variety of bilateral cone rod dystrophy. He reported symptoms of minification while wearing corrective spectacle lenses and expressed a desire to engage in sporting activities at school. Best corrected distance visual acuity was 2125 with a manifest refraction of minus 17, minus 225, axis 15 in the right eye, and 2040 with a manifest refraction of minus 16, minus 175, axis 180 in the left eye. Corneal topography was performed to aid the contact lens fitting. Despite the patient's regular astigmatism, RGP lenses were selected because they often provide the best subjective vision to patients. The topographic images were then used in tandem with a diagnostic fitting set to find the best fit lens. Because the corneal astigmatism was regular, the patient was fit with spherical RGP lenses. He was ecstatic with his visual outcome. Best corrected distance visual acuity was 2070 in the right eye and 2030 in the left eye. The final RGP lens parameters are shown in the table. The patient was mature enough to become proficient at applying and removing his RGP lenses and he was instructed on their appropriate care and maintenance. He has been happily wearing the lenses for six months and he has been playing both soccer and baseball while wearing his RGP lenses. At times, fitting specialty contact lenses in children can be a frustrating and stressful process, but the experience is truly rewarding more often than not. 
It will give you an opportunity to specialize your practice, cultivate new skills, and most important, help patients. Moreover, favorable outcomes are likely to win you lifelong patients. As technology advances, results will continue to improve. That was a great article by Drs. Lopez and Noyce. Hopefully you can use some of their tips for success with this challenging but highly rewarding process. The Mod Pod will be right back after this short break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. We're down to the last article of the episode, and it's both timely and interesting. Laurie Grover, director of the Center for Eye and Health Outcomes and visiting scientist at the Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee, tells us what we need to know about the COVID-19 pandemic. Here she is with some important takeaways from public health evidence. We are currently in a transitional period from staying at home to opening practices safely and um, expanding that care. Of primary concern is understanding the evolving public health and safety recommendations that accompany this new um, part of the pandemic. From a public health perspective, we recognize past examples of outbreaks that came raging back after health measures were prematurely relaxed. And we need to take that under account and pay attention to our state and federal guidelines and guidance on this practice reactivation as we move forward. There is recommended federal guidance that the governors must embrace, and this can have a political flavor. So for example, in phase one, each state must see a decrease in symptoms, infections, and hospital admissions for at least two weeks. These recommendations will continue to affect our clinical decisions on how we can re-engage with our patients and our communities. There has been recent evidence of uh, several states that opened, quote, too early, um, now seeing resurgence of, um, of the initial pandemic numbers and cases. Increasing testing and contact tracing Um, are needed to safely reopen while we reduce the risk of new outbreaks. Uh, A recent NPR um, poll regarding preparation for contact tracing showed that only one state could currently meet the estimated needs. And this is a very traditional part of public health. The vast majority of states do not currently have the capacity to meet needs for contact tracing. And this is a historical pandemic public health action. So at this time, social distancing remains the only effective countermeasure along with wearing masks. It's interesting to note that a recent cost effectiveness study found that if COVID-19 were to infect 80% of the US population, it would result in approximately $650 billion in direct costs over the course of the pandemic. If only 20% of the population was infected, there was a projection it would still engage 11 million hospitalizations and 1.6 million ventilators would be used at a cost of $164 billion. 
So the size of this uh, pandemic truly is enormous, and uh, it's easy to forget that as time goes on. And even though the curve may be flattening in certain regions, case rates are still increasing as, as witnessed by uh, recent activity in several large states. A study um, earlier this spring found that measuring COVID-19 based on hospital referral regions is different from other types of federal data. And the study showed that every hospital referral region had at least 20 cases of the virus, 300 had more than 50 cases, and almost 300 had more than 100. And that was several months ago. So um, I'm sure we're, we're noticing larger numbers today. So those are examples of why it's important to stay current with strong science and local public health data from public health professionals and other experts to help make informed decisions on um, your practice and the clinical decisions of taking care of patients. Another area in which um, we need to uh, understand um, impacts of the pandemic are that primary care physicians, which include primary eye care physicians, um, us as doctors of optometry, uh, PCPs have been taking a huge patient care hit. Uh, in one study, visits to ambulatory practices declined by almost 60% through mid-March and have remained low through mid-April. Um, ophthalmology visits in this particular study, as optometry was not included, were down almost 80%. And recent data from the American Optometric Association Health Policy Institute also found that 80% of doctors of optometry were, through that time, providing emergent and urgent care during the pandemic. They also found that three out of four doctors had personally taken a reduction in income. Another trend of note is that telemedicine has replaced only 30% of primary care, um, of major concern during the pandemic is how to maintain appropriate treatment for chronic conditions. So while we are modifying care delivery, doctors of optometry must also remain focused on the best health outcomes. And that includes maintaining standards of care, um, which in certain types of care delivery cannot be maintained through telehealth. Advocacy from the AOA has included clinical resources and optometric parity with physician colleagues, both in relief legislation and like the PPP or the Paycheck Protection Program, but also um, have included um, guidance on how to use telehealth and telemedicine to effectively maintain best practices and standards of care. Many organizations have generated best practices for reopening offices, but there is no one tested formula. So one um, suggestion is to think about patient care in terms of patient needs as asymptomatic or symptomatic, and that's a great way to start triaging care. So if a patient is symptomatic, be able to decide if it's an emergent, urgent, semi-urgent, or non-urgent care need. This will help identify the care that you are going to deliver and how to deliver that care, whether it is in person or via a, another means like telehealth. And remember that many factors affect access to care. So doctor availability is a potential access factor. So thinking about when can you and your team be reached 
and how you can be reached is an important um, communication strategy for patients. Um, Patient uptake of care is what we call realized access. If a patient cannot access the internet, how can you best meet the standard of care moving forward? So um, if they can't actually get to you and uptake care, that should help influence the type of care you want to um, offer and deliver as well. Other things to think about moving forward are factors like when the public will view access to care as safe. Um, it's not really just what the doctors are doing. It's also understanding what's happening in your community. So how will patients seek out care? When will they trust that it's safe to visit you again in person? What if a patient is symptomatic of COVID-19 and, and comes into the office? What if a team member gets sick? Um, these are all important questions when, when understanding what options to have. And there are webinars and resources and tools and lots of news on the AOA website, which is aoa.org forward slash coronavirus that can help answer these questions. And there are other websites as available as well from other organizations like the CDC. There's a section of fallout that we're all starting to see as a result of the pandemic. Um, one of the earliest changes that we've seen across all healthcare professions has involved um, delivery of didactic and clinical education. There are pros and cons when education is presented via distance means, and it really is unknown at this time how these changes will affect long-term outcomes. Besides um, the pandemic highlighting a lot of disparities in healthcare, another area that has been highlighted is gender disparity. Uh, One in three jobs held by women in the United States has been designated as essential during the pandemic. Most of these women whose jobs were designated essential are likely non-white, and women also tend to have a disproportionate burden of home care and child care. Uh, Editors of academic journals have actually noticed that women are submitting fewer papers during the pandemic. So how will female academic accomplishments be evaluated during and after the pandemic? Um, This awareness of existing and potential future disparities is critical both to professional advancement and reducing disparities based on gender. Um, Before the pandemic, there was growing concern and organizational focus on developing strategies to minimize doctor burnout. This has been a big topic uh, for several years. Now, staff burnout is also a factor along with mental health challenges that accompany the pandemic. So this is an area where additional strategies, research, and guidance will be needed. FDA relaxed guidance during the pandemic, allowing eye doctors more leeway with certain medical devices and using certain technologies. So from a patient safety perspective, this also opened a door for unscrupulous companies and individuals for whom patient safety is not a priority. Um, Standards of quality care must be maintained to prevent abuses to patient safety and ensure best health outcomes moving forward um, through the pandemic and beyond. We also need to remember that the world continues to turn Before the pandemic hit, efforts to expand health insurance and prevent people from losing it were still front and center, and they remain front and center at this time. Access to essential health care remains important, and political battles and regulatory issues are still with us. Uh, One example that I hope you're all aware of is that there is ongoing pushback in the state of Arkansas by ophthalmology in an attempt to overturn optometric scope expansion 
that was passed uh, just prior to the pandemic. These issues will require all of us to remain active and vigilant and help our patients realize um, expanded access to proper continuum of care and um, and the kind of care that that they deserve as a um, from primary care provided by doctors of optometry. The pandemic also offers us opportunities to reevaluate what we as doctors are doing both in our practices and for our patients. There's an opportunity to think about modifying the care that's offered. Um, it could be a good time to add a specialty or redelegate how care is delivered. Um, there is opportunity to consider change. Remember that optometric care is essential health care. Um, and the advocacy via the AOA and the states and fellow colleagues um, that continue to fight for optometry and doctors everywhere, it continues to focus on opportunities to further the value of optometric care to our nation's overall health and to work. Doctors of optometry are engaged in all sorts of uh, community service and outreach, including COVID-19 testing, and they continue to lead primary care delivery. Nearly 60% of patients treated by optometrists during the pandemic would have otherwise sought care at emergency departments, um, as revealed from a recent AOA HPI survey. So thank you for listening, and I hope that helps to give some interesting perspective on uh, what to look for down the road. Thanks again for listening. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Seriously. Find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Or email us at modernod at bmctoday.com. In our next issue, we cover some great topics on ocular surface disease and the female eye. So look for that to go live online in the next couple of weeks. As always, stay healthy, be well, and I'll meet you back here next month.